Welcome to season two of the Always in Pursuit podcast. I'm Mike Levine. Together with my buddy, Mike Burke, I'm excited to keep telling you the stories about amazing and interesting people you ought to know. Our podcast unpacks the journey, the struggles, and the victories of our guests in an effort to help you in your own pursuits. You're an important part of the AIP mission, so please share this episode with people you might think will benefit from the content or with people that just like to hear good stories. Thanks for sticking with us as we continue talking to people who live life on the offense. So as you heard in the intro, we kind of take it as a point of pride to introduce you to people you ought to know here on AIP. Chances are you either already know our guest today, you've seen some of his content on social media, or you bought one of his Ranger Up t-shirts. He's had a pretty incredible journey from a small government-funded college in upstate New York's Hudson Valley region, you know the one I mean, to founding the prototype for every veteran t-shirt business in the game. He helped to make one of the most memorable and profane independent military movies ever. And uh, today, he not only runs a digital marketing agency, he's been a major player in the effort to evacuate Afghans abandoned after the U.S. withdrawal last year. He's written a book with Special Forces veteran and MMA fighter Tim Kennedy about Tim's life and that experience. So please welcome the co-author of Scars and Stripes and the founder of Ranger Up, Nick Palmashano, to Always in Pursuit. Nick, thank you so much for, uh, for stopping in and talking with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, hey, we're going to talk about this amazing book, which, by the way, debuted this week on the New York Times bestseller list at number eight and is currently at number three on Amazon's most sold titles. Uh, But we're going to hit that in just a few minutes. First of all, I got to ask you this. uh, On Twitter, uh, Mm -hmm. in the year of our Lord, 2020, (laughs) on July 28th, you posted a 37 second clip from the John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis classic Perfect. I call it a classic just because it's old, not because it's good, but like it's almost 40, 40 seconds of like hip gyrations and knowing looks between these two mid 80s icons. Uh, Why in God's name have you been posting this clip daily for uh, as of today's release date, Saturday, 697 days? And for those of you in the cheap seats, that's one year and 11 months. Please, Nick, why? Uh, so I do a lot of things for my own amusement, right? Like I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what people think about things. And so I saw, you know, this, this clip got posted and it reminded me of my eighties childhood. And it's just so ridiculous that I posted it, you know, the first day, like, Hey, I just want everyone to know this exists. And then like, there were so many people day one that were like, I better never see this again. And so I was like, Oh, you know, screw you. Like you're going to see it again tomorrow. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, like at some point it, uh, it just became kind of like the thing of the pandemic. And it was super interesting to watch because my follower account around day 30 started dropping off because people were like, all right, he'll do this for a month and then he'll be done with it. And then like around, you know, I, I day 31, I had like, I don't know, 200 people just say, I can't handle seeing this anymore, which amused me even more. But then it like kind of reversed course. And like, I started getting followers that were just amused by the notion of some idiot posting this, you know, every day. Um, There is no rhyme or reason. I do not like pre plan, like there's no 
programmed posts. So the whole game in my mind is, will I ever miss it? You know, this will end when I miss it. And I thought for sure, you know, when we, when we went to Afghanistan, that I wasn't going to have any, you know, connectivity there, but shockingly, you know, some of the dudes on the ground, uh, kind of gave us access to a server so like I was able to do it from Afghanistan um, and it was amusing to me that I was like at HKIA and all this terrible stuff's going on. And I'm like, well, I'm going to take this brief moment of this very shitty day to tweet out this video. And then same thing in Ukraine, like, you know, on, on my time uh, bouncing, you know, into Ukraine, I've been able to get connectivity and, and do so it's for me it's like an amusing thing like at some point it'll end when i you know forget die you know whatever but there's no real rhyme or reason to it although i will tell you i considered i considered like stopping at day 364 uh just to amuse the shit out of myself but i i was like you know what we'll we'll take it to a year and not have not be actually murdered. Well, I'm glad I didn't make the bet with my friend that uh, this was a uh, you know a hootsuite uh, recurring uh, schedule post or something because I would have lost that money, and and that makes it even more insidious that you actually <laughs> you actually do that every single day. You're 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 pasting in a link, and yep. and and going for broke. I love it. I love it. So this this leads me to think that you probably have a twisted sense of humor and it it probably goes uh goes way back. Uh what what is it what is it that that led you to the military uh with a twisted sense of humor like that? Um I grew up, you know, I was born in America, but I grew up in Italy. My dad uh is Italian, was born in Italy, came to the states, was a Vietnam uh veteran. Um, and then later, you know, became a, a GS guy and he had the opportunity to, to run a, a part of an office in Naples. And, you know, I was young and was like, hey, you know, I want the kids to be exposed to, you know, where I grew up. And um, so, you know, I grew up essentially as an Italian kid. I moved to Italy when I was three and, you know, was fluent Italian. All my friends were Italian. I lived on the Italian economy. Well, then I came back to the States. Uh, my dad got a job uh, in, in Newport at uh, what's now Newick, then was Nusk. We moved back to the States. And so I'm living like outside of Boston. And now it's a different, it's a totally different vibe. Italy is chill, kid friendly. People are just like very nice. I'm outside of Boston now. And they're like, hey, you know, I heard, heard you speak Italian. Say something in Italian. And I did. And then I got beat up. And, and basically I got my ass kicked for about a year and a half. Like recess was the worst possible thing for me. I knew that at recess, I was going to end up in a fight and it would be like multiple people against me. That's funny because where I went to high school, they didn't mess with the Italian kids, but that was because my school had a long uh, and storied history of uh, educating the children of La Cosa Nostra. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we did not have a lot of Italians. We had a lot of Portuguese kids and a lot of French kids, not a lot of Italians. So um, I, this, I'm old. So this was like the time when like Karate Kid 2 was out. And uh, so I was like, mom, I need to learn karate. And she was like, you know, let me look. And the closest karate place was like 45 minutes. And mom wasn't up for that. But there was a judo place that was like 10 minutes away. 
So she's like, you can do judo. I was super bummed because I was like, man, like that's not going to be as good as karate. And it ended up being like a blessing because judo is actually tremendous for, you know, real world application, grappling, et cetera. So started doing judo, got really good at judo that led to wrestling. When I hit high school, uh, I, I became a, a, you know, an all state wrestler. And, uh, I, I started looking at, you know, where I wanted to go to school. I got recruited a few places and I visited West Point and instantly fell in love with West Point and decided like, this is what I want to do. And the reason for that is, you know, I was a good student. You know, I, I went to, I visited, uh, you know, Brown and MIT and uh, Boston university and all these places. And every time I went to one of those schools, it was, you know, you should come here because we're the best. I went to West Point and I followed this kid. I still remember his name, Cadet Han. And Cadet Han had a rough time. He got his ass kicked every day, you know, just like it was rough. Like they rode this dude. And I followed him around for like a day and a half. And then at my very last meal, you know, where they're hazing the plebes and all that, like this upperclassman looks at me and just goes, hey, bro, like if you're coming here because your parents think it's cool or your friends think it's cool or you want to brag about being in the military, don't come here because you're going to fail. Right. Like, but if you're coming here because you want to serve and you want to do something meaningful with your life, then come here because you'll have a chance of making it. And like that, like hyper negative, aggressive, you're probably not good enough was like, all right, this is where I want to be. Did, did you continue the, uh, the tradition of, of Cadet Han? Uh, as a plebe, what, what would you uh, stack your your level of yeah. ass kickings versus uh, versus Cadet Han? So, so I was way worse than Cadet Han in like our version of basic training, which is called Beast Barracks. Um, and it's a function of like if you're a high performing person that is used to like working hard and being good at something and Beast Barracks is designed so like, if you think about basic training, basic training is like, let's break people down, get them out of their high school mentality, and then, you know, get them to be a team or beast barracks is like a bunch of kids that are just like you were showing up. So they know that you're a little cocky. They know that you're, you know, you're used to winning. They make sure you lose. And like, I had a hard time with that because I had worked very hard to like win, 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 win. Um, after losing so much for a few years that it, it was like a, it's a chip that I perpetually still have on my shoulder. Like I don't like to lose. So I was terrible in beast barracks and they actually, my squad leader, you know, would just yell Paul Machano sound off. And I had to say, sir, I'm a wedge, the simplest machine known to man. And I still don't work. <laughs> um, but uh, I was, I was not afraid to like fail. And so by the time that I beast was over and I hit my, my first academic year company, I became very good. And uh, I had a perfect 4.0 military um, grade until I got my regimental board for uh, basically telling a dude that he, he sucked a lot, but I did it in writing and he turned it into Lieutenant Colonel. And, uh, and that was that was a, a mindset change that I actually welcome because, you know, if you think about all the West pointers, you know, there's kind of like two kinds. There's like the, I think I'm the best. And then there's like the perpetual child, but like really get shit done. And that changed me from like, 
I'm going to be this guy to that guy. Well, that's an interesting way that you put that, uh, the perpetual child who gets shit done. As you commissioned, is that basically who you were as a young lieutenant, as a platoon leader? Absolutely. Abs- the dumb shit that I did as a lieutenant is shocking. <laughs> scale, scale of one to 10, what, what's your number as a, as a, as a lieutenant, as a platoon leader? I mean, I think I did a good job, you know, but like, you'd have to ask the, the guys that, that served with me. You know, I, I think I was a good platoon leader, you know, um, but I will say this, I definitely was a ridiculous platoon leader. I will give you very quick examples. Uh, we returned from essentially the first K4 deployment. And, you know, I was now the senior platoon leader. And my battalion commander calls me into the office and he's like, hey, Paul Michano, you know, you like doing that creative shit. Um, I want you to write, you know, a skit for the brigade dining in. And I was like, sir, we just got back from, you know, a year overseas. Like we got all these new lieutenants. Shouldn't it be their job and blah, blah, blah. And while I'm kind of like, you know, going back and forth with the BC in a friendly way, you know, like it wasn't like, I wasn't telling him, no, I'm obviously going to do it. If he says do it, uh, the brigade XO walks in and this guy was a dick. He was just always a dick. And his name, his name was major Adams, major promotable Adams, which he always let us know. And he came in here and like, while we're talking, he just kind of storms into the the battalion commander's office and just literally puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Lieutenant out, men are talking. So I look at my BC and he's like, yeah, all right, go outside. And so I wait while these guys talk and then they call me back in and, you know, and, uh, you know, this guy gives me some more shit and. And like, I have like a prop, like I have no problem with authority in terms of like, Hey, this guy is a major. He's going to tell me what to do. But as soon as you start getting like, we're going mano a mano and like, you can't physically beat me up. The chip, that chip on the shoulder comes out. I'm like, let's fight. Like that, that's in my head. Like, let's fight. So he leaves and I go, sir, I would love to do this skit. And, so, and I'm just, I'm betting there was a, a, an impression or something of, oh, of the good so major you would, Adams. <laughs> you would think, you would think it would be something like that. Everyone else does their stuff. You know, we get to this brigade dining in, everyone else does their stuff and it's like normal, you know, dudes and dresses, all the weird normal <laughs> infantry, infantry armor stuff. And I get up there and I don't know if you remember South Park, the, the Kyle's mom is a bitch song. I do very well. So I basically redid that with our battalion and it was major Adams is a dick. And so we do the whole thing. Major Adams is a dick. He's a big fat dick. He's the biggest dick in the whole wide world. He's a mean old dick. If there ever was a dick, he's a dick to all the boys and girls, like choreography, the whole nine, the place is dying. We finish Adams runs up to me. He's bright red. He's a bald dude. He's bright red, like vein throbbing in his head. And he like sticks his finger in my chest and starts to like rant. And my battalion commander screams from the front. Hey, Adams, stop being a dick. Yes. It was, so that is one example. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't choreograph that yourself. You couldn't have written that yourself. Could not. Could not have. It was amazing. And I got, I got away with it. So that is the kind of lieutenant I was. But my guys, like PT, amazing. They could all shoot. Like we were great at, you know, like when we went to 
you know, uh, CMTC, like we kicked ass, like hero of Hohenfels award. Like we worked hard, but I also was a very weird, like I just approached things differently. And some people liked that and some people hate it. Right, right. So I was always in this gray area. I got good grades, but like I also almost got fired a lot. <laughs> Blade running. So so at some point, I'm sure you had to chafe against this 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 system. And and I have to imagine that's what led to you leaning towards the door. What what is it that kind of tipped you over and, and sent you out into uh, out into the world? Most of the people that I feel like didn't quite get it done from a leadership perspective, looking at them now, I give them a lot more grace because it's, you know, now that I'm, you know, deep into my forties, um, I know that I failed as a leader multiple times, try, you know, trying my best. And, and back then as like a cocky Lieutenant, you know, you expected people to almost be perfect. Um, but like the very first company commander I had, like, I, you know, I, my first day on the job, very first day on the job, like literally I get brought out to CMTC. They're already in the middle of CMTC. I'm told, Hey, you're going to spend, you know, three days in the talk. Then you're going to spend a week shadowing the old Lieutenant. And then for the last two weeks, you're going to take over and, and run the platoon. So I'm like, this is reasonable. You know, this is great. First day in the talk with my new company commander, a guy I did not know was going to be one of the soldiers that I that was in my platoon, Sergeant Gonzalez, walks in and he says, you know, hey, sir, I just got some bad news. Um, my mom is dying. She's in the hospital. I need to go home. And uh, he looks at him and I, I think he's about to say the right thing because who would not? And instead he goes, Sergeant G, are you a doctor? No, sir. Are you a nurse? No, sir. Well, there's nothing you can do for your mom right now. But what you can do is make sure that your crew shoots expert at gunnery and we have the best company in the battalion. Jesus Christ. I was like, I can't fucking believe I'm hearing this. So Sergeant G leaves. And this is day one, day fucking one as a lieutenant. I go, hey, sir, you know, I, I don't want to inject myself into a situation that's none of my business, but, you know, we can't do that. Like, this guy has to go home to see his mom. And it became a whole thing. I was like, sir, I can't believe, like, I'm saying this on my first day, but, like, if, if you don't let him go, I have to go to the battalion commander because I think this is immoral. That's how I started. Quite the splash. And I'm sure the company commander appreciated you dropping his boss's name like that. Yeah, he understood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and he tried- it, had to, it had to absolutely set the stage for who you were as a as an officer and as a man, right? Because I mean, if you're, if I, you're using words like immoral to a senior officer, that that's one of the three key words, illegal, immoral, yes. and ethical, right? So yeah. that's the that's the litmus test. Yeah, I loved I loved being a platoon leader. To be honest, if I could have just been a platoon leader forever, I would probably still be in, albeit like, you know, a slow injured platoon leader at this point. <laughs> but, you know, I thought that was the best job in the world. And my my eldest son, despite my my guidance and Tim Kennedy's guidance to him to go Air Force, uh, is just got commissioned as an infantry second lieutenant. Oh, and wow. yeah. And uh I told him the same thing. I said, you know, 
make sure that you always can sleep well at night, knowing that you made the right decision. Because when you're in the military, you feel like this is your whole life. But like when you get out, you realize like it was a blink of an eye. It was a moment. And, you know, it doesn't define you other than define you morally as a human being. And what decisions did you make? And what groundwork did you build for yourself? Amen. So as your your son now uh, starting sort of his career, you you ended yours mm-hmm. would have been about 2003. Right. So what 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 is it that 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 pushed you towards the door? Um, at that, at that five-year mark? Yeah. So it it was a couple of things. The first thing is, um, I, the first great officer that was in my chain of command, there were other great officers that were kind of around me, but the first like truly great officer in my chain of command was Bob Curtin. Bob was a, a Ranger regiment guy, um, was a, uh, went on to CAG. I mean, was just a total badass, but he was the first time that I encountered somebody and I was like, I want to be this guy. Like, I want to know what he knows. I want, like, he's better than I am in every way. I want to learn from him. And prior to that, um, there were just so many flaws that, you know, and again, like, I'm not like, I look back on it now and was like, I'm too harsh. If, if I was a better lieutenant, a better leader back then, I would have filled those gaps for my bosses. Um, and that's something that I know now. But as a young person, like I wanted to be inspired by the captains and the majors and the colonels that were over me. And I just was never like I, I didn't have that moment where I was like inspired. And by the time I had Bob, I was pretty fucking jaded. You know, I had a really interesting conversation with um, Af, a good friend of Tim's, is is now a, a group sergeant major. And um, he asked me this question. Now, we were both drunk, you know, but we've been friends for years. He's like, he's like, man, like, you've done so much good stuff. Like, how the hell did we lose you? He's like, man, did anyone ask you to stay in? And I thought about it. And I was like, no. Literally, no one asked me to stay in. Like, no one, no one proactively was like, what's next for you? And I think things have changed a bit in that regard. But back then, it was like, you're either a piece of shit or you're staying if in. If you think about the era that you served, um, you know, all the captains you, you were watching and those battalion commanders, they, those were all creatures of peacetime. I mean, they were all raised in a, you know, with the exception of, you know, yeah. a very small and select population that went to yeah. Desert Storm, went to Panama, yeah. Grenada, whatever. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of them had never really done the hard stuff, and and so I I remember those days pretty pretty clearly as a as a very young NCO. Um, it was hey, you know, stay in or don't don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Exactly, that's how they got you. So you ended up going to Duke for business school. I had a blast at Duke you know, can you think of a better exit from the military than going to like Duke university, you know? Yeah. Maybe like Harvard or something, but like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hell of an exit. It should have been easy, but it, it actually wasn't right after I arrived at Duke, one of my favorite soldiers, you know, and you're not supposed to have favorites, but this Bill Mayer, I I loved this dude. Uh, He had been a chef 
in Aspen making bank and uh, was overweight and decided that he wanted to serve, worked his ass off literally. And, you know, came to my platoon as a, as a 31, this was, he was a mortarman. This is when I had the mortar platoon came to my platoon as a 31 year old, uh, you know, E4 cause he had college and, you know, he was the old man, which is hilarious now that I'm old, actually old, you know? right? <laughs> but he was the old man. And this guy was just such a trip, you know, would, would cook meals for the platoon, always sarcastic, pissed off the NCOs, but like never in that way where he was really in trouble, just like, you know, always throwing the little daggers out. Loved the guy. Absolutely loved him. Um, the dude that, that took, you know, that took over for me, um, one of my best friends on planet earth, Jared Crane, uh, Jared and, uh, and Bill were in a vehicle together that got RPG, uh, and, uh, and we lost Bill. And so I'm sitting there, you know, at a Duke University like party, and I get this text. And it's like, and you know, I didn't know if Jared was okay. I knew he was injured. I knew he had shrapnel in his face, you know. Um, and you know, and Bill's gone, and like never felt more guilt in my entire life. Like, what am I doing with my life? Do I need to go back in? Like, am I a failure? Am I, you know? If I was there, would it have been different? Like, of course not. You know, Jared's a stud. He's a far better officer than I was. But like, even right now, I'm starting, like, I'm tearing up, right? Like, I, I, and it sits with you, you know, it sits with you. And so, um, you know, it, it's always going to be bittersweet, you know, like you get out and you're always part of the family. And you always think about, you know, what, other people have given and you, you think, did I give enough? And that's always going to be with you. And it's very heavy. You know, I apologize. Uh, but it, you know, it's with you for life. Whenever you get out, whether it's, you know, a few years or you put in 30 or whatever, you know, it's always going to be with you. So when you get out, trying to switch gears to something positive, when you get out, it is really important that you, you have a purpose and that you build a new tribe. Because if you don't have those things, it pushes you towards a very depressing uh, part of your life. And I think when we think about, you know, veteran suicide, I don't think, and the, the data does not suggest that it is demons and all the, you know, the, the, the combat and all the things that everyone thinks it is. I think it's, you go from having the most important job in the world, defending the United States of America to doing whatever it is you're going to do. And no matter what it is, like I, I told my son this, when you leave, no matter what you do, unless you get elected president, you're never going to have the same responsibility that you have as a platoon leader in your entire life. All of us are finding that in the post-service period, the scope and the scale of whatever it is that you did compared to whatever it is you're doing. Absolutely. You know, you could go from being a, a senior officer to high echelon somewhere in the army and go to a, you know, a fortune 500 company. And it, it yeah. just is, it's not the same. It's not the same. It's really not. And the stress is different. Like it's not, you're not, I was never stressed at all. You know, when I worked for a fortune 100, it was like, 
even when when people were freaking out because like, oh, this big thing is happening. It's like, this isn't big. This is a PowerPoint presentation in front of important people. But like, what's going to happen? Are they going to fire me? I actually like, got a, I got a talking to about uh, in an organization that I work for in describing emergencies as life, limb and eyesight and not not, you know, investor calls or, or <laughs> you know, it, it did a multi multi-million dollar aircraft fall out of the sky where people killed. Is there a mass act of indiscipline that will yeah. completely impact the company's reputation? If there's like a no to all of those, take a deep breath and and approach it, you know, yeah. appropriately. But that that didn't work real well for folks that invented <laughs> its life. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, you're all done with Duke. You're at John Deere. Yeah, I'm I'm pushing you forward here because we we do want to talk about the fun stuff. Right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, had, absolutely. you, you came up with a, a an idea for a side gig, which is now everyone's ultimate goal as they come out of the army. Now they want to run a veteran T-shirt company. So talk talk, I, talk about Ranger Up. I was not trying to be a real entrepreneur. I um, I was 29 years old. I was making a quarter million dollars a year. Uh, for my family, I know for some people, that's not a big deal. For my family, nobody in my family on either side had made anywhere near that kind of money. Um, and so my family is like, man, you made it. Like, you did it. And um, I was incredibly unhappy. And it's not because, like, John Deere is a great company. I tell people, like, if you want to work for a great company, go work for John Deere. They're kind, they have vision, they're feeding the world. There's so much good about it. But I'll give you one example. Um, my first gig there was uh, running, uh, a, you know, I was the, the essentially like the two IC for a billion dollar uh, book of business that was licensing. So the hats and the the uh, the T-shirts and the toys and you know anything that John Deere wasn't making, we were we were licensing. And I had a great group of people, you know, that were really doing it. I was kind of I was in a leadership group, so I'd be like in for eighteen months and then a new gig or whatever. But I show up and we had a goal of really growing our apparel business. And so um, this guy Dean Hamke you know, he and I were tight and we would just brainstorm crazy shit we could do. And then like, you know, uh, like, you know, we sent hats to like Ashton Kutcher and he wore one on punked and then John Deere blew up. And, um, you know, but I wrote this like letter to, uh, to David Letterman, David Letterman at the time was featuring brands once a week that did something cool for kids. And so, I donated, you know, I, you know, but I donated a few thousand dollars of toys to the David Letterman show to give out to kids in New York City. And I sent, you know, this triple XL shirt because at the time he had this this dude dressed in a bear costume that was on every episode to put on the bear. And I wrote this like really tongue in cheek letter that, you know, everyone around me thought was hilarious. And Letterman receives it, loves it. And does it. And like, we got like a 30 second ad on the David Letterman show about John Deere toys and our, to our toy sales blew up. It was great. Can't go wrong with that. What, what I got in trouble. Why, why would you get in trouble? Because I didn't ask like corporate ah. PR. I didn't, I just did it. 
you know, which and they're like objectively, they're right, because like I thought I did a pretty crafty job with all of it. But what if I was an idiot? Maybe I am an idiot. And I went out there and like I'm writing this as if it's John Deere and like everything blows up and they look bad. Like it could have happened. Well, let me just join everyone and say those damn PR guys, man, let me tell you. (laughs) But I mean, you can see the threat, you know, and I but at the time I was just like, man, I just kicked ass for this company and just got you like a million dollars worth of PR and our toy sales were through the roof. And now we have the number one, you know, ride on toy and, you know, Toys R Us and Walmart, and I'm getting, you know, essentially chewed out. And so that, that was frustrating. So I needed something creative to do with my time. And, uh, you know, so there was no, there was nothing for the military at that point, other than like the stuff you could buy in army Navy stores. I was a huge busted tea fan at the time, ironic t-shirts, weird, funny shirts. So I started making, you know, designing funny shirts uh, for the military that I was giving to my ROTC students. Cause I was volunteer volunteering with Duke ROTC, even after I had graduated uh, teaching them army combatives and small unit tactics. And like the kids were like, Hey, you know, how come there's nothing cool in the military? Like everything is either skulls and snakes or death from above or like over the top macho stuff. So I, I started making these funny shirts using Microsoft paint. Then I'd mirror it and I'd heat transfer it onto white t-shirts from Michaels. And uh, one of the kids was like, you know, you should do this. Like you should actually like hire a designer that isn't, terrible like you are and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and launch something. And so I did, I was like, man, I just need to do something that is for me. That is like, well, that, that hobby became rangerup.com and, uh, you know, started getting some fans and, um, started doing some, you know, some fun things and like, you know, taking the proceeds from it and, you know, doing some charitable work. And it was this cool little hobby I had while I was, you know, in my mindless, you know, corporate gig that was, that was putting money in my pocket. Um, And then I found out, you know, about two years into this little hobby um, was about the same time that I was, you know, kind of finishing up my second rotation at deer. And, um, I had already been promoted once and, uh, my boss said, Hey, Nick, I've got great news. You're going to get promoted again. And it's going to be a hundred thousand dollar raise and your bonus multiplier goes up. So I I was going to go from a base salary of 250,000 to like 350,000, which is absurd. And, uh, I took it weird. I was like, you know, I thanked him and all that, but like inside I was really freaked out and I thought about it all weekend. And I came in on Monday and I said, I quit. I'll stay as long as you want. You need me for a month. You need me for three months. You know, like, I don't want to leave you in a lurch, but like, I can't do this anymore. And my mentality was, you know, when I left the military, like a lot of guys have this mentality, especially officers or, or senior NCOs is like, well, I've, I've served. So now I'm going to go make money, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to go show everybody and I'll, I'll make money. Right. And I, I found that making money did nothing for me. I was not happy. It did not change my life. I also am a person that lives very simple. 
Um, not that I'm like, you know, I, I don't live uncomfortably. I'm not like a dude that just has like a mattress, but I don't like right now, you know, I've been a successful entrepreneur for many years. Like I spend money on nothing for myself, like my kids and my wife and all, you know, but me, I wear t-shirts and shorts every day. I don't spend money on cars. I don't spend money on watches. I don't spend money on any, like there's nothing that I want. So for me, it's all about the work. Um, what's the work and is it, is it valuable and does it, you know, fulfill me. And so this stupid little t-shirt hobby, like really inspired me. And I was getting all, you know, I was, I was fulfilled by it. And I, you know, people were writing me saying like, man, this article you wrote really helped me. Um, and so I jumped into it and became a real entrepreneur, almost bankrupted myself at my worst moment. I had $57,000 in credit card debt I was recently divorced. I had $1,300 in my bank account. And I was renting two rooms from my buddy, Rob Halford, who is still a dear friend. Um, only renting because he, I, I just had to give him money, even though he didn't want any. One for me and one for my uh, one-year-old and three-year-old. It was low, man. Like it was, it was a low, low moment. But I felt alive. I felt like I was doing good work. And, you know, fortunately, you know, Ranger Up turned into, a, you know, an eight-figure business. And, um, you know, I had a lot of success. And, uh, you know, we were, I feel like, you know, we did a lot for veterans and we did a lot for, uh, you know, the troops. And I felt good about everything that I did while I was running Ranger Up, you know. And uh, that was a huge moment in my life because it, it, it very easily could have been, I very easily could be a dude that is, you know, sitting in a corporate chair, making a ton of money, living a very boring life. And that has not been the case. Or feeling like you, you don't have a soul. Yeah. I know. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. So yeah. talk to me about Ranger Up and the intersection of the t-shirt business and mixed martial arts. And then like that, if you think of that as a four-way stop sign, like where kind of those two things come together, like off on one of those corners is the advent or the rise of social media. So if you can kind of tie all three of those together for me. So when I started Ranger Up, there, there really wasn't any social media. And I got involved in social media as quickly as it was available. So we actually had a, a very successful MySpace page where our number one fan was uh, Brandy Love. Get out. She was a huge Ranger Up fan. She wrote us and was like, you know, hey, can you can you send me some stuff? And we're like, yeah, you know, of course. And she would model this. She would model our stuff and uh, and send us pictures and you know some that were you know PG thirteen and some that were. Definitely not. Um, but we like, she told us to like put them on the website and stuff. So if you were a super early Ranger Up fan, Brandy Love modeled most of our women's apparel. Like I mean, of course, you know, when I said, oh, wow, it was because of MySpace and not because of Brandy Love, because I have no idea. Of course uh, you don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brandy yeah. Love is. <laughs> you're, you're a gentleman. You're a gentleman. So you wouldn't know. But uh, yeah. So, you know, but, but prior to the MySpace, uh, you know, thing kicking off, the, the way people learned about us was, you know, we would go to events, we would sponsor, 
um, you know, different military events. We sponsored the, you know, all of the army combatives tournaments in the early days. Um, and, you know, it was like writing blogs because, you know, this is going to, you have to be old to remember this, but mill blogs were a huge thing. And so I used to write for, you know, all the major mill blogs and, um, it was a different time. It was a very different time. And even when Facebook came out, it originally was the only reason I had access to Facebook is because Duke was like the third wave of, of Facebook. The first wave was just Harvard. And then it was like, all right, we're going to let all the Ivy League schools in. And then it was, hey, let's add Duke and Stanford and the other nerd schools. And so that's how I got in. I got in because I had a Duke account before, you know, it was before everyone could be on. And so, you know, I got on at first, there, there was no real advertising and then they added advertising and, uh, and they added more colleges. So I was able to like advertise to West Point and Texas A&M and the Citadel. So we were doing like minor advertising, like early, early on, but um, yeah. So one thing that, you know, I had always had a passion for is, you know, starting with my, my judo career is fighting. And, uh, you know, I have done, I've done everything, you know, so I, I even had a weird, like, you know, you've got to try karate, give karate a chance. I even did Shotokan karate for a little while and I just did not enjoy it. it did not find it practical, but I, you know, judo, wrestling, boxing, you know, you name it, I have done it. And, um, I put together this, this uh, Maxim Magazine Wounded Warrior Project charity event, and I needed models for it. And I, I reached out to uh, the SOPC guys at Bragg, and I said, hey, you know, like, I want to I wanna kind of feature your program. Is there anybody that you can send? And they, they were like, we got this guy, Tim Kennedy. Maybe you heard of him. And at the time, no one knew who Tim Kennedy was. He, he was not a household name, right. but I was an MMA nerd uh, because I just love fighting. And so I knew who Tim was and I had watched a couple of his early fights that were like, you know, crappy, you know, YouTube, early YouTube style videos. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Send him out here. So this was only a few months into Ranger Up. So I'm kind of going backwards a little bit. And um, Tim shows up and, you know, uh, shows up with his, his then girlfriend, uh, now wife. And, um, there's all these scantily clad women, you know, doing a Maxim shoot and it's him. And the whole time, like, I'm just busting his balls the whole time. And he's like, who is this, you know, idiot. I was going to say, Tim, Tim was not known in the early days for being the, uh, person having his balls busted. So that, that was, that was kind of an interesting dynamic. I'm sure. You know what? He, he is a really easygoing dude and he is not the tough guy. Like people think he is this, like, don't step to me. Tough guy. I have watched a drunk uh, fan dump a beer on Tim's head. And Tim was like, Hey man, looks like you spilled your beer. Let me buy you another. One. Damn. And then the, and then the, Yes. And then the, like, I was going to punch the guy before Tim, Tim was going <laughs> and then, and then Tim sat down and talked to this guy with beer stuck to his body and like got to the real issue. And the guy had to vent and he felt like Tim didn't care about the troops or whatever, you know, pe people have all of these beliefs about the guy based off of nothing. 
like really based off of nothing. Like I've known him for years and like, there's a lot of reasons I want to punch him, but none of them are the reasons that people accuse, accuse him of, you know, like, sure. He's, he's a good person. And, um, so, you know, but we hit it off because, you know, I busted his balls. He kind of reciprocated, we hit it off. And I ended up being his first sponsored, uh, his first sponsor ever. And I sponsored him at the Army Combatives Tournament, I think in 2007. I made these Army Combatives shirts and um, I gave one to anyone that was competing. So everybody that competed at the Army Combatives Tournament at Fort Benning in 2007 received a Ranger Up shirt. And then all of a sudden we were the Combatives brand. Yeah. And I, I just want to throw in there that uh, as a, as a uh, Sand Hill drill, I remember seeing one of those t-shirts on somebody in the PX and was wondering what the hell is Ranger up? I've never, never heard of that. Yeah. So that became the beginning of our link with MMA. And over time, you know, I, I'd be fast forwarding over a lot of time, but you know, over time, um, I became one of Tim's corners and I cornered Tim for 12, essentially 12 years, you know, through his entire, uh, you know, the end of his IFL career, his entire strike force career, his HD net career, and then his entire UFC career. Uh, I was in his corner for every single fight and, um, that dude beat the crap out of me a lot. Like, Whenever people are like, oh, yeah, you know, it might, I bet it'd be so fun to spar with Tim. It is not fun. It is not fun to have. I have been grappling since 1987. Um, I am not like an elite grappler. I'm an old man, but I very rarely get just bodied by anybody. Like even great black belts, like they kick my butt. They win in the end. They wear me down. They're slicker, whatever. But like, I'm not getting just embarrassed. But Rolling with Tim is embarrassing. I might as well be like a six-year-old child. It doesn't matter. There is nothing I'm going to do that is going to result in me winning. Well, you spent uh, a, a lot of time in those years, the, 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 probably the 7 to 2010, really kind of building your brand through social media as, as social media exploded, as you said, you know, kind of a, a really uh, uh, a shallow pool with Facebook in the early days. But in, you know, as it, opened up to the, to the rest of us unwashed 2008, 2009, uh, yep. you really started to find an audience for, uh, for your brand and for your product. How do you yeah. think, um, social helped you get where you are? So social's amazing. It, it's, I have a love hate relationship with social media. Um, I definitely enjoyed it more back then because back then it wasn't about paying for audience. Now it's about paying for audience. Um, but back then, if you made a good piece of content, you know, if you put out a good message, it really was amplified by people that shared your values and your beliefs. And my vision for Ranger Up was always to um, like educate, entertain, and inspire. Like I always thought about it as I want to uplift the community as much as possible. Um, and I think, I think other brands took a different tact and there's no criticism, uh, in this, like every, you know, you, you but, um, you know, we, we did not want to create a 
veterans are not functional veterans are uh, you know, uh, you know, can't succeed veterans are broken mentality. Like, because interestingly enough, even though we like to harp on things like veterans, uh, suicide, the data actually shows that veterans are far more successful than our civilian counterparts in every facet of life. Well, there's um, a, there I, is a degree of sort of this victim mentality that, that, that goes into our community now. Um, you know, we 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 fought a, a generational war. Um, there, are, uh, there's a, a pretty decent sized portion of that audience that feels they were used and discarded. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's also a subsect of that group that that almost revels in that in that feeling of being discarded. And and I think that's just a huge narrative that that the the larger group that remains mostly silent, like you say, you know, successful at what they do. They're just going on about their lives. I think that's that's the the group that broadly we you know us in the veteran yeah. community need to touch and redirect and 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 help sort of dispel that that feeling of 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 you know broken discarded. I call it the the island of broken toys. You know that that is not what you know American veterans are, and and that 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 enduring narrative it does nothing but hurt us in the long run. It, it absolutely does that. Uh, it, it becomes an excuse for a small subset of the veteran population to not excel. And the the example that I I give to people because I, I try to I try to give examples that are very clear that challenge assumptions. So no one goes into Ranger School the first day they're in the military because they won't succeed at it. Right? What's the process? They show up, they go to basic training, they get into some kind of fitness if they're not in shape. They learn how to, you know, how to be disciplined. They learn how to road march. They learn the basics, right? Then they go to AIT and they learn more. Then they go to their unit and they're really challenged and they're really taught how to do things. And at some point they become a leader. They go to, I don't know what it's called now, but it used to be PLDC, you know, the E5 course, right? Um, they go to that and then they pass that, they do well, they come back to their unit. And if they're really like motivated and they ask for it, they get sent to ranger school. Well, before they get to go to ranger school, they have to pass pre-ranger in their unit. And sometimes the second pre-ranger at Fort Bennett, then they go to ranger school and they're still, you know, 67% still don't pass. Right or whatever the number is now, back then, that's what it was. You, you, there's a progression. Everyone knows what the progression is. And you have to go through all those gates in order to succeed and get your tab. Well, the same thing is true in the civilian world, but no one wants to pay the price because they paid the price in the military. But now flip that, right? If I was successful in the civilian world and I became the director of operations for IBM, and then I said, you know what? I want to join the military. Day one, I don't want to go to basic training. I just want you to make me the Brigade S3. Everyone would laugh. That's ridiculous. But they don't think about it the other way. And I think that that's why so many people get into trouble is because they feel like they've paid enough dues in the military that they don't have to go and pay some dues on the civilian side. 
And if you approach it with a military mentality that, hey, you know, they will, like I might have to take a little step back in order to actually do the things that I want to do. They're not going to make me like the king of the world on day one. But if I apply the same tenacity that I applied in my military career to becoming a squad leader, to becoming a platoon sergeant, whatever, to the civilian world, I will be successful. You know, Nick, I think that that's a that's an amazing point. And I don't think there are many people who look at it from that perspective. But I would I would push back only a little bit and just say that it's probably uh, a perspective for someone that did a short period of time in the military, saw that military progression and then went out and busted their ass in the civilian world. I have seen I can't tell you how many people that have retired from the army after 20, 25, 30 years, been senior, senior level uh, officers and NCOs, and really do have the expectation that you just described, which is, hey, I, I was a uh, brigade commander. So of course, I should be a uh, vice president or senior vice president or somewhere, you know, equivalent in the in the civilian world. And I mean, there are some times where those those skills, they track and, and that places, but I think there's a there's a there's a pretty good chunk of our population that has a um some unrealistic expectations in those regards and I think the way that you described it is 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 really spot on. And and again, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people that get out and just crush it. You know, what I was going to say before is the data shows that veterans in this, you know, make more money, um are more successful, have higher happiness quotients. Like literally, if you look at just about any variable looking, comparing veterans to the civilian population, we're doing better. And I think there's two reasons that that isn't prevalent. The first thing is the all of the Vietnam stigma continues, continues to, to, you know, stick on veterans and people assume that we're, we're broken. Like that's the first thing. But the other piece of it is there are a lot of nonprofits that reap significant benefit from the idea that veterans are broken. Well, and and it always brings you back to the question: who benefits, who profits? And and there there probably is a um, there is something to be said about the number of people that can make money off of the veteran community by reinforcing some of those notions of being broken, or yeah. or or somehow you've lost instead of gained by yeah. by your time and service. But I, I don't want to bridge out of something depressing immediately into something that's uplifting. But I really do, you know, as as you built Ranger up into what it was, you hit yeah. sort of an inflection point in the mid tens where, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't the only game in town. You had other other veteran um owned and operated veteran yeah. oriented businesses. And and what I really like about your story is that Rather than looking from a through a business lens and just looking to crush all your competition and and run the table, um, you took a, what appeared to be a different tact, which was to really tie in with that group. It would lead to what many of us know as as one of the most amazing low budget films of all time. <laughs> Hey, listen, we're going to talk about that real quick, but I just need to take a real quick break and let everyone know about our sponsor, Additon, and their flagship product, the app Muster. So during 25 days of block leave this past holiday season, the Army Training Center at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, cadre and leadership 
sent more than 20,000 messages to more than 3,000 soldiers via muster across four battalions with a 90% successful delivery rate. Muster isn't tied to any legacy system, and it starts with just a mobile phone number. This is a product built by Joe for Joe. Muster gives leaders the power to manage their personnel at scale, no matter their location. You can save hundreds of hours coordinating your team, disseminating information, and collecting and analyzing data quickly and securely. So if you're tired of how your unit communicates, you want to reduce the noise and distractions of chat applications, Muster is your answer. You can learn more, connect to the Additon team, and see how others have started up free, no-risk market research trials of Muster at their website, getmuster.app. It's Muster with no E, so that's G-E-T-M-U-S-T-R dot A-P-P. And so we're back with Nick Palmisano, a man uh, to whom I hesitate to assign a title since you have so many of them. But Nick, the one we want to focus on uh, at the moment is filmmaker. So uh, it's 2015, and and there is a probably a pretty deep pool of uh, veteran oriented and veteran owned and operated businesses that are really attacking the the uh, the, the market that you kind of owned at at one point. Talk to me about Article 15 and the partnership that ultimately led to Range 15. Yeah. Um, So I'm weird in terms of the way that I look at life in general is like there are always winners and losers, of course. But like I've never wanted to destroy my competition. Um, And so at the time that you're you're describing, it, it was it was really us and grunt style. Uh, and then a bunch of smaller ones. Um, and, you know, Article 15 showed up. And what I immediately liked about them is they were the first military brand that wasn't a Ranger Up rip. Uh, everyone else had taken, you know, had taken our business model, literally in some cases, taken our shirts, taken phrases from our shirts, thrown different art on it and called it theirs. And everything was just like, Hey, let's, let's copy Ranger up and let's change it a little bit. And, and, you know, maybe not even like in a negative way in terms of, but, but like they weren't doing anything different than what we were doing. So I'm not assigning, I'm not assigning like immoral anything. Sure. Uh, But they were replicating what we did as opposed to creating their own thing. And article 15 did not even like nothing like that. Everything they did was unique. They put crazy shit on shirts. Um, You know, they were a content creator that happened to sell apparel. And, you know, like I just thought they were very creative and very interesting. And so early on, I actually posted a lot of their stuff on Ranger Up. And, uh, you know, Matt and Jared actually called me before starting Article 15. And they were like, hey, man, like, I hope you don't take offense. But, you know, we're starting our own thing. And I was like, oh, you know, great. You know, congratulations. Here's some advice. And so we started with a good relationship. Um, Jared and I, in particular, think about things in a similar way in terms of marketing. Like, I, I think... I think that he's one of the most creative people I've ever met on planet earth. Like he, he is a, a fountain of ideas. The hard part with Jared is which idea are you going to execute? Because his brain is 
like I, I don't even know if he sleeps or if he just you know constantly comes up with new things that he could shoot. So he reached out to me and was like, "Hey man, um, I I I want to make a movie, and I want to know if you want to help." And uh, I was like, "Yeah, like tell me, you know, I've always wanted to make a movie. I, I've been cutting film since the '80s with two VCRs." Like I've been making stupid movies since the eighties. And so he and I started talking and, um, you know, we decided, Hey, let's, let's do a 50, 50 partnership on this and, and make a movie. And, uh, you know, we had, uh, they had put together like an early script and, um, you know, then like I did a rewrite and Ross did a rewrite and, you know, we just kind of kept working on it until we had a script that we all thought was, you know, ridiculous, and fun. And, um, then we went to Hollywood and Jared and I tried to sell it to Hollywood. And these guys were like, let me get this straight. So you want to make a movie with a bunch of non-actors that no one has ever heard of. And you want us to give you money for this. And, you know, we were like, yeah, that's exactly what we want. And, uh, they were like, well, this isn't going to work. Everyone said no, except for one dude who was like, I like the script, but I want to, I want to do it with John Claude Van Damme instead of, instead of (laughs) the ensemble cast of, you know, so basically replace Matt's character with John Claude Van Damme and then like get three B actors for the rest. And we were like, no, we want to do this all with Z level actors. So Hollywood laughed at us. And so, uh, you know, I came back and I, I wrote a, a dumb sketch that became the skit that we put on um, Indiegogo and we raised $1.4 million. We only needed three fifty. dollars uh, Wow. To do this, we were going to do this tiny little, you know, nothing film, but we raised all the money. And so then it was like, let's see what, what else we can do. So I wrote a letter, you know, we wanted to get William Shatner because we just thought it'd be cool to have William Shatner. And uh, like, we couldn't get a hold of him. So I wrote, I wrote like a really nice letter and sent it to him. And I still remember, you know, and Ross will tell you this, Ross was like, there's no way William Shatner is going to read this letter. There's no way he's going to answer the letter. And we send the letter and he's like, this is one of the nicest letters I've ever received. Like I'm in. And then we had William Shatner. And then, Sean Aston reached out to us and was like, I want to be in. And we're like, yes, yes. Sean Aston, you can be in. Um, so Sean Aston, he, he's had some connection to the military community. I, 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 I think he was a, a, a civilian was a, assistant to the secretary of the army. One of those to, dudes. To the president, to the president. Yeah. He was, uh, he was appointed by the president to, you know, to represent the military and uh, he took it seriously. And that guy was a stud. He, um, he had just completed an Ironman the day before, so he couldn't even stand. Like he was in flip flops and he was like limping. Oh, so man. that's why that's why we don't shoot him like very much standing up or anything. <laughs> he's all he's all in the helicopter because he couldn't walk, that's but he hilarious. still showed up. Yeah, he, he so, was great. So this was the fourth largest Indiegogo campaign ever in the history of the platform. Yep. So at, by the time your campaign ended, the official end date. It yeah. raised uh, $806,000. And then the the ultimate, like by the time they actually shut it down, you're what you said, 1.4. Something like that. Are yeah, you, are you like utterly shocked by that reaction? Like, like, cause I want to say, I remember when this launched and, yeah. and I, I, 
watched the, the skit. I laughed my ass off. Yeah. Uh, I checked the Indiegogo and I think it had like, I don't know, something in it. I It was a very, very low number. I want to say it was still in the hundreds when I saw it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. I looked at it the next day and it was at 300K plus. Yes. I was like, this is amazing. So we we needed to get 350. That was like the bare minimum we needed to shoot something. And so we put 350 up there thinking we'll get this, but we, we did feel confident we would get it by the end of the 45 day window. We did not expect to get it in 20 hours, which is what we did. In 20 hours, we hit 350,000. So then we were actually kind of screwed. It was like, man, we, we, now we want to make a bigger film, but we've already hit the window. So what do we do? And so um, we reached out to Marcus Luttrell and we're like, Hey, Marcus, what is it? What will it take for you to be in the movie? And he's like, Oh no, I'll just do it. And he's like, well, we need to set a goal so that you'll only do it if we hit this number. And he's like, I don't know, half a million. So we were like, all right, the new goal is half a million and we'll get Marcus the trail. And we hit it that day. And it was like, Oh shit. Jesus Christ. So then like we had to rapidly build like this new set of goals so that we could make a bigger and bigger and bigger movie. And then it was like, you know, once we hit like seven fifty or whatever, then we announced, hey, we got William Shatner. People were like, oh, my God. You know, and then it was like, we got Sean Astin. We got Keith David. Randy Couture is in. You know, Martin Kleb is in. Like, it was just, um, it was wild. It was wild. Well, what 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 do you think is sort of the legacy of uh, of Range 15, you know, some seven years after after it, uh, it came yeah. out? So Range 15 is... I can't, I can't explain this to you enough. It is still a successful film. We still get thousands of dollars a month from just people watching it on Amazon prime. Like it is, it is an absolute cult classic in, in two communities, the military community, of course, uh, but also like the zombie flick community, like like that is a hardcore community I knew nothing about, but the zombie community loves the fact that we're never really in danger from zombies. They're like, they were, there was never like a threat moment. They were just like meandering around this world with zombies everywhere. <laughs> like no one is concerned. No one's afraid. No one's, you know, so we kind of fit a weird niche there, but I think the bigger thing, and, and, you know, if you've ever seen the documentary about the film, I'm actually more proud of that in some ways than the film itself. Uh, it's called Not a War Story. It's also on Amazon Prime. Um, but we were told we couldn't do something. And the entire veteran community rallied around that movie. When I tell you that, like, they rallied around it, I mean, we had hundreds of people come out to filming to just be zombies or to do bit parts or to just support us to like do whatever was needed. When our, when the Humvee that we rented went down, Marines essentially stole parts, you know, which we returned, but essentially <laughs> stole parts, drove four hours to where we were fixed the Humvee and then like at the end of shooting, we gave the parts back and they, they went, I mean, like crazy things happened to keep that movie moving. Um, when we were, when we were launching in theaters nationwide, we used a service called Tug, where you basically, if you got enough people to sign up for a film, 
you could then show the film in the movie theater. But if you didn't, then it wouldn't show. Uh, and we built Facebook pages for every state, but like our fans ran them. We, we couldn't run them. We gave them resources, but they ran them and they built these, you know, all these showings. And we premiered in 650 theaters nationwide, which even today would be bigger than anything, but like Marvel or Top Gun, you know, those, those movies get like 1100, 1200 theaters nationwide. But we we opened in more theaters than just about any movie that you're going to see. I have to imagine that 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 when you reflect on that, it, it's kind of a an amazing feeling. Like holy shit, we we amazing. did that. I I don't. There are very few. But, things. but hearing you talk, I I know the word is we did that. It's not going to be I did that. That that's that's what I really dig. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, like yes, like Jared and I and Vince. And, you know, and Jack and Tim and, you know, Matt, like we, we worked our asses off, but at the end of the day, we don't have the infrastructure to do what an entire, you know, like what MGM can do, but we did it because the community literally volunteered for so many things. Like one of the nicest presents, maybe the nicest present that I've ever received in my life at the one year mark, um, the anniversary of range 15 coming out, the leaders of all of the little subgroups by state gave every one of the principal actors in, in range 15, a two volume. When I say two volume, each volume is like 500 pages, a two volume set of like pictures not just of us filming, but every theater that showed Range 15, they took a picture of everybody that was there and posted it in there and had signatures of the people that were there. And they had planned this before Range 15 even came out. And they they put this, I, and they spent thousands of dollars. I mean, if you think about what that to give the gift to the six of us. It was so generous, so kind. And, and so like, it's impossible for me to say anything other than we, you know, like, yes, I'm great at marketing. Yes. Jared is great at marketing. Yes. Tim and Matt have huge audiences, but you know, a lot of people have huge audiences and we beat, I mean, we crushed Hollywood actors that are huge that launched their own little film projects the same time we did. I mean, crushed them. Like they, they raised like 150 grand people that, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling anyone out, but people that, you know, as actors raise like 150 grand and, you know, us idiots raise 1.4 million. It's not because like we're amazing. It's because we had a community behind us. Well, what's the old story? It's uh, it's better to be uh, lucky than good. Right. And, yeah, and you well, have hey. certainly, You've certainly been lucky twice with the launching of the company, the, the film. And then, you know, we come into your other first, which is Scars and Stripes. It's the first book you've written. Yeah. Uh, the You know, just, you know, no big deal. Small little project out the gate. Uh, as of uh, today's release of the New York Times bestseller list, it currently sits at number eight on the nonfiction list. Uh, seven, and, seven uh, on the nonfiction list, eight on the overall list, combined books, all books and all audio. I, I stand. Not that I'm a stickler for detail, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're number seven. So also that annoys me. I'm going to complain briefly about 
about uh, the New York Times. So we were told out of the gate that the New York Times is not based on numbers. It's an editorial. It's an editorial board. So there's no rhyme or reason. Right. And given Tim's reputation as being more right than left, we were told we had to pr- produce numbers that are undeniable. And so, you know, uh, I own a marketing company called Diesel Jack Media. And early on, you know, I gave the mission to my guys that we have to be undeniable. And so we ended up selling directly to individual customers more than anyone else. And we were number seven. Uh, We also purposefully did no bulk buys, meaning like, you know, uh, Tim's companies didn't buy anything. Tim sponsors didn't buy anything. Ranger to, Up didn't buy to, anything. To, to fluff the numbers. Got it. No, we we did not do it. Because no, exactly. It, to, could, that meant all your sales were strictly organic were, and and, they were and all readers. Individuals buying it because you get a thing called the dagger on the New York Times list if you have too many bulk buys. So we want it to be pure. So we lost numbers wise. We only lost to one person. That was James Patterson. Who I mean, phenomenal author. Like I'm not, I'm not. He deserves it. Like I'm not complaining. But we know that we beat him significantly on Amazon. Like we were number three on Amazon for the same week. He was like 28. Um, we know we beat him on Barnes and Noble. We know we beat him in Indies. He had a few thousand more books than we did, which means he did bulk buys. There's no other way he got there because. Amazon is literally 95% of most people's uh, book sales. So we know we, we beat them badly there. Um, he got no dagger. We got a dagger, even though we had no bulk buys. And like, I'm not going to assume there was a reason for any of this, but we had the number one book in the nation last month with readers, no question about it. And well, at least on the New York Times side, uh, I don't I don't know if there is a, a right or left lean, but uh, you're one ahead of Kellyanne Conway, which for me personally, I'm 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 totally okay with. That. I'm, I'm also totally okay. Amazon. Amazon, <laughs> you are Amazon. You are number three with a bullet. First time out the gate. Here you are. Your debut name on on a on a book, and and you are achieving that level of uh, acclaim. How does that feel? So one of the biggest things my wife is frustrated with about me is that I never sit around and take the moment to feel good about things. Um, when the list came out and we were number seven, I was pissed. You got to be kidding me. Nick, like I, I mean, I, come I, on. I know. You know? I know. I know, <laughs> I know. I was, I was, I was furious. Like, and the first thing, cause we, we didn't get the numbers released until later. The first thing, so the publisher reaches out, right. so I'm, you know, Simon and Schuster is like this huge congratulatory message to Tim and I, and like, you did it, you know, this is amazing. First time authors, you know, and this you'll have, you'll be a New York times bestseller for the rest of your life. And my response was, like, hey, you know, we've got this dagger. We had no bulk buys. Is that what screwed us? And the woman was like shocked. Like, she's like, screw it. You're a New York Times bestseller. I was like, yeah, but we know we sold more than all of these people, except for maybe Patterson. So like, 
what went wrong. Like we were already AAR and, and Tim was the same way. <laughs> and, and so, you know, <clears throat> again, it, you know, my dad kind of did a good, like, Hey, you know, like, it's kind of a big deal. It was like, ah, it's like, take a minute. You know, my wife is like, this is what you guys wanted. You know, like now you're not happy that you're not number Take one. Take the W or, you know, for God's sake. <laughs> Take the W. Yeah. You know, I'm not like, I am not motivated. And Tim is the same way. I'm, I'm not motivated by the acclaim uh, <clears throat> for a number of reasons. But the big thing is I have been up and down in life. Like there was a moment where Ranger Up was the coolest kid in town. And then there was a moment where Ranger Up suddenly wasn't cool because like the second generation veterans kind of like, you know, that's for the old guys. And then Ranger Up became cool again. And, you know, I've also had speed bumps, you know, as a business person where we were really screwed and I had to like find my way through very challenging situations. And I have found that um, if you judge yourself and, and your happiness in life by what other people think, you're always going to be disappointed. And you're also always going to have a fake view of reality. So, you know, I, I get told a lot like, oh, you know, you, you just need to take the compliment or you just need to take the like, I'm uncomfortable hearing compliments for a number of reasons. But for me, I pick something that I care about. I do the work. And I enjoy seeing it to its rightful conclusion. I tell my employees, what I expect from you is hard work and seeing things to its rightful conclusion. We worry about the results when they come. But what I wanted to do, having never written a book, like, you know, one of my best friends on planet Earth said, I would like you to write my book. I would like you to represent me. And... I took that very seriously. And what I- No pressure, right? A huge amount of pressure. And, um, you know, I wanted to represent who he really is as best as I could in his voice as best as I could. And he was also extremely brave in writing this book in that the easiest thing in the world for Tim Kennedy to do would have been to write a hero book where he is just the man, like- and he's awesome and he doesn't make mistakes. And he wanted to do the opposite. His belief was people know me on social media and they assume that I've had a certain kind of life. And actually, like, I've failed a lot. I've embarrassed myself a lot. I considered suicide. I actually kind of tried to commit suicide, uh, you know, and by fighting through these things, I arrived at an entirely different place. Um, and it was a really brave book. And if, you know, if you haven't read it, um, it is not what anyone expects. And, you know, I, I told Tim, the first week is going to be based on marketing, which is what you and I already know we're good at. We're going to win the first week. We're going to have success. But every week after that is going to be based on you know, people reading it and the report card is, you know, what are the reviews and what are people thinking? And we're, we're knocking on the door right now of 
across everything, like 300 five-star reviews. And most of the comments are like, holy shit, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Because he he talks about, you know, that that dude was at the lowest point of his life, stripped naked, and started swimming as far as he could into the Pacific Ocean with the intention of not coming back. And it was only because a middle-aged lady saw some shredded dude get naked on the beach and started paying attention and then was like, wait a second, like, what is he doing? It's cold out and called a Coast Guard cutter and said, hey, I don't know, you know, I hope I'm not overstepping, but this dude just took off and they found him. Wow. Um, and he took that moment and turned it into something very different. But it's, it is a wild ride. But it's it's not a rut like it is not him saying yeah. like, hey, I'm the man. It's it's exactly the opposite. And um, but I also, you know, he's also not a loser and never was even in his darkest moments. And so I felt like because I knew him and I, I knew, you know, the good and bad of Tim Kennedy, that like I had like a real obligation to make sure all of that nuance came out in the book and not just because, you know, you can easily make him a Rambo because in a lot of ways he is, you can easily make him a broken veteran because in right. some ways he is, you know, that's not the totality of who he is. And I, I think we nailed it and, and I think people are enjoying it. And so I'm proud of the work, but it did not change my feeling when we hit the list other than I, like the system isn't fair. Cause we should have been higher. We at least should have been two. I think one, but we should have. Well, I mean, subsequent weeks on the list, there's, there's room for movement. So, so you never know. You you absolutely never know. know. One thing I did like about the book uh, is in the acknowledgements of all places. So uh, there's a, there's an interesting story in there about the, uh, uh, the professional level of, of editing that went into the manuscript before the publisher got it. So who were these top flight professional editors that you got to go over the manuscript before it went to the publisher? Our dads. Uh, so Mike Kennedy and the elder Nick Palmashano, uh, we called them the Council of Dads. And after every chapter was finished, we sent it off to them and they gave us their comments and their comments were excellent. Uh, you know, my dad is a he's an excellent writer. Uh, he writes poetry. He writes prose. He you know, he does it for he honestly writes poetry for my mom. And I know that sounds like cheesy and old fashioned, but they have one of those uh, relationships for the ages kind of thing that makes, you know, most people, uh, you know, envy them a little bit. Love to hear it. uh, He's a tremendous writer. And, uh, you know, Mike Kennedy is brilliant and has an exacting attention to detail where he caught like every possible mistake especially in, in anything involving Tim's fighting career or his childhood it was like, this actually happened here and this happened here. And so by the time the two of them got through with it, it was a very clean manuscript. And when I tell you, like, I'll even share it with you, like the, the, the manuscript that we turned in versus the edits. I mean, it, it was light. Like I was expecting a lot I turned their edit around in less than 24 hours. Wow. So they gave me the edit and was like, Hey, you know, like approve or disapprove, or let's talk about it less than 24 hours. They had it because I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Change this word to this word or, 
you know, yeah, we can move this paragraph down and move another one up or maybe change the wording here. I mean, I just sat down and knocked it out. So. Pride and pride and workmanship aside, I, I have to assume that the Council of Dads was pretty pumped that uh, there was very, very light changes to to their submissions. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're they're both interesting dudes like uh, both of our dads. I'd say that I'd say Mr. Kennedy is probably a smidge more flamboyant than my dad, but um, they're very similar in that they, you know, they prioritize their family above everything else. They both did very dangerous things in their youth uh, and use those dangerous things to look at everything else and stay even keel. So like when, you know, when I have crises, when Tim has crises, like both of our dads react very similarly, like just like, eh, it's really not that bad. Here's what you need to do. Here's what's going to happen. See this to its rightful conclusion. Have a little patience. Things will work themselves out. Um, and and they also both get, you know, we, we just as a as very rare, but through our friend, uh, Sarah Berardo, who is uh, extremely well connected and is a, as a constant uh, support for us. Uh, we were invited to, to host our book at the Library of Congress. And um, we had like 33 members of Congress in attendance and uh, you know a number of people from DOD and all kinds of uh, important people. I, was, I would say I was the least important person in the entire room, uh, <laughs> hands down. And I'm not even joking, hands down. And uh, the Council of Dads was... They gave the opening remarks so that the two dads got up there and said really nice things about Tim and I and, uh, you know, we're the best speakers of the night, you know, put us to shame. And uh, it was a, it was a nice night. And also, you know, at, at our age now, we're also very cognizant that we're lucky that, you know, our parents are around and they're healthy and they're able to do these things. And, you know, absolutely. Nick, at the hazard of having to run uh, this as a two-part episode, uh, I could literally sit here and talk to you all day. I I do want to know, like you, you're that guy that's basically on the always on the forefront of the next big thing. W- what's the next big thing? What are you working on now? Well, right now the thing that's taking up a lot of my time, other than my day job, right? So I've got my day job, which is Diesel Jack Media. I, I help companies tell their story. At some point. I realized that what I really am is a storyteller. You know, I, I, I never like, you know, with Ranger Up, I didn't actually care about any particular t-shirt. I don't have an affinity for apparel. Um, I liked telling stories. I liked making skits. I liked, you know, uh, telling the story of the veteran. And, you know, a few years ago, um, I did a VC deal with Ranger Up and, and uh, you know, Tim and I went from owning all of it to uh, becoming the minority shareholders. And, and that was fine. It was exciting. We kind of were able to take Ranger Up to another level. Um, but, you know, I just started thinking, you know, I have learned a lot and I have a lot of skills and... I've been asked by, you know, really important people to solve problems for them. And I'm not sure that I'm doing enough to satisfy, you know, myself. Like, um, I'm not sure that I feel challenged. You can only sell so many t-shirts and still 
come at it like with a new and exciting way. And so, you know, after the venture deal, about a year in, um, you know, the uh, this the VC firm, you know, was kind of uh, we were we were getting into COVID. Uh, it was just kicking off, literally just kicking off. And they were like, you know, hey, we're going to do a, like a 10% layoff across our businesses to, you know, kind of, you know, make sure that we're in a good position. And I was like, eh, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, you know, we got to do it. And um, it was a weird moment. Like, a, you know, the VC firm's great. Like, I don't have any, any issue with them at all. It's not like, you know, Grunt Style had all issues with their former, you know, um, they're, they're great. They're great to us. I talk to them all the time. Right. Um, good partners, but it just, there was a moment where I was like, this isn't my company anymore because my approach, it would have been like, we're going to, we're going to keep everybody. We're going to figure out a way to fight through it. We're going to, you know, and, and I'm, I also will say that they're better business people than I am. I'm not a great business person. I am a, I am a dreamer. And I've been burned for being a dreamer many times, but I think the price of me changing is more than the price of me becoming a better business person. I, I, I lean towards believing in people longer than I should, but I'd rather be that way. So um, I kind of said, you know, uh, I think you should lay me off. And, uh, and they were surprised and, uh, you know, they kind of tried to talk me out of it. And I just said, I don't like, I don't have it in me to be only thinking about this anymore. Like I need, I need to do more and, you know, I'm, I need to do something else. And they were like, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I'm going to start a, a, a media marketing company. Uh, and I really did decide like in that moment. And, um, so, you know, after going back and forth with it, they, they laid off, you know, another one of my employees and me, and uh, I hired her right away. And she was like, what am I doing? I'm like, I don't know yet. She's like, well, what's our company? I'm like, I don't know yet, but I'm going to pay your salary. And um, I kind of went back and forth with the guys at Ranger Up and they were like, you know, no one here that, that worked for you is going to be like, they're not going to be loyal to us. You know, we're in different states where, you know, like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, if you want, you know, you can hire me to, you know, to, to run, you know, the, the, all of the marketing for Ranger Up. And they, they said, that sounds like a good deal. So we kind of came to an understanding that very reasonable. Everyone was, again, it's, it was a, a very reasonable accommodation. And then, they laid off, you know, all of the employees that were here in North Carolina and I hired all of them and uh, started Diesel Jack Media. And so Diesel Jack Media for the last few years has, um, you know, has run, you know, Ranger Ups marketing. And we recently stopped doing that and they're doing it all internal now, which I recommended um, because like sometimes you just have to move on. And, and it just like, uh, I, I didn't want to be the t-shirt guy anymore. And so, you know, in the last two years, three months, we've, we've diesel Jack media has become a, a pretty robust organization. Uh, you know, we've got just shy of 20 employees. We, 
we manage you know 30, uh, 30 accounts across both the for-profit and the, the non-profit space. And life's been pretty good. And you know, we're a multi-million dollar company and kicking butt and having a lot of fun doing it. But um, you know, last year in August, the thing that became top of mind is what is now called Save Our Allies. And um, but at the time, <laughs> it was Tim Kennedy and I sitting on a couch and we were writing what was going to be the last chapter of Scars and Stripes. And uh, the phone rang, our phones rang literally at the same time, like maybe five seconds between. And Chad Robichaud called Tim and uh, Sarah Verardo called me. And they both asked us in separate conversations if we would go to Afghanistan to help evacuate people. And um, my question was, first, are you joking? You realize I'm a at the time, 44-year-old man with a dad bod that hasn't done anything tactical in a very long time. And Sarah's response to me, which was very kind, is, I know that if you're there, things will go well. And um, Chad asked Tim, and Sarah and Chad had already spoken, so this was a, this was a planned assault on the two of us. Um, Chad asked Tim, like, my interpreter Aziz is trapped in Afghanistan. His buddies have already been killed. They're hunting him. Can you help get him out? And Tim and I both had the same response, which was, I have to call my wife. Let me get back to you. And, uh, I don't, you know, I won't, I don't know what Tim's wife said, but you know, a few minutes later he had the, okay. I called my wife and, uh, She's she's English, so she's she can be extremely hard. Like, but in she was inspiring in this moment, and I put it I put it in the book. But um, she said, Nick, what is happening right now is horrible. I can't do anything to help, but you can, so you have to. Now, in the moment, it was very inspiring, but since then, I just joked that she was trying to get me killed in Afghanistan. Yeah, you saw your you saw your life insurance uh, pump up really high. <laughs> Before you got on that airplane. <laughs> and uh, so 24 hours, 36 hours later, Tim and I were on a plane to UAE. Um, a friend of ours, uh, I know the, you know these random connections, but a friend of ours had a friend who grew up with the crown prince from UAE. Um, he gave us two C-17s to use. And I call it the 12, but basically 12 middle-aged dudes from that, you know, we, some guys were special forces, some guys were from the intelligence community, some guys were infantrymen, you know, but 12 middle-aged dudes with Sarah Verardo back in DC, clearing manifests with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, you know, spent 10 days running around Kabul, uh, pulling as many people as possible you know, that, that met the criteria out of Afghanistan, putting them on C-17s and then later 737s as well. And uh, at the end of 10 days, we had evacuated 12,000 people to either the UAE or to Qatar. That's amazing. That is just simply we were, amazing. We were just shy of uh, 11% of everyone that got evacuated, went through 
the 12 of us, which became Save Our Allies upon returning, uh, we were asked by a few folks in the government that that uh, there was assistance needed and could we could we stand this up as an actual nonprofit? And so we did. And that nonprofit now has teams, you know, like this this year thus far, I've spent 50 days uh, in the Middle East and uh, uh, maybe another 10 days in Ukraine. But we've had we have had a team on the ground in Ukraine since 7 February. So it's been a wild ride and, and uh, it, it was all born out of, you know, one moment in time. Um, but now I, you know, I would argue that we were probably one of the more influential nonprofits in the Ukraine conflict because of the structure that, uh, that we approach everything with, which is a, a special forces style structure. I got to say, though, it really does tie back to your comment earlier about, you know, living a, a, a life with purpose. Um, mm-hmm. This isn't just about making money. It's not just about, um, you know, being on the New York Times bestseller list, whatever, whatever insert whatever thing there. This, this, this matters and it matters to people and uh, it will continue to matter for a very long time. Nick Palmashano, seriously, uh, really great uh, to talk to you today. Uh, appreciate you coming on always in pursuit. And uh, we're really looking forward to having you come back uh, when maybe you're the number one on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> now you're just taunting me. You're just taunting me. But no, it's hey, I really do. appreciate it's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Hey, before we go, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app of choice so you can get our new episodes the minute they drop. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a five-star review. It helps us spread the word to a larger and more diverse audience. You can always head over to alwaysinpursuit.org for our blog content, newsletters, and AIP swag. Thanks once again to Nick Palmashano for joining us on this episode of Always in Pursuit. I'm Mike Levine, reminding you to live life on the offense.